Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The floor crunches underfoot as a stunned Theodore Bauman shuffles through the smoking ruins of his old workplace. Just days ago, a building stood here among the 35 teeming blocks of the Greenwood District, Tulsa's proud black community. Now it is merely a barren lot among others, covered in soot, rubble, and charred wood. The streets around it are virtually unrecognizable. Hands covered in ash, Bauman walks the perimeter of the Oklahoma Star, the newspaper where he was once managing editor. The Star's owner and Bauman's former boss, Andrew Jackson Smitherman, has left town for the East Coast, nervous that he will somehow be blamed for inciting the massacre by advocating in print self-reliance and resistance to mob violence. Bauman, though, has not run. He remains in Tulsa with the newspaper's business manager, Henry Goodwin. Finally, Bauman comes to the object he's been seeking, a still intact linotype printing press. He touches it, knowing that this battered metal machine is a reliable symbol. Despite the horrors that have occurred in this city, all the destruction and the death, this black-owned news business will survive. Like the people of the Greenwood District themselves, this paper will be printed and voices will be heard, rising, enduring thriving. Welcome to American History Hit. Don Wildman here. Glad you're listening. Today, we examine a notorious event of epic proportions, one that took place on Memorial Day weekend in the early 20th century. On May 31, 1921, in the streets of Tulsa, Oklahoma, a riot broke out that swiftly spread to the black neighborhood known as the Greenwood District, where over a matter of days, sickening violence took hold. Killing, looting, the burning of black homes and businesses, what eventually became known as the Tulsa Race Massacre. It is still shocking to talk about the scale of this tragedy. Unfortunately, in Jim Crow America, it was not all that unique. But what was unique, unprecedented really, was the astonishing success story that the Greenwood District had become in the short decades since the failure of Reconstruction. Only by grasping the rise of this remarkable community, its vibrancy and vitality, can the sad events that transpired be put in any kind of perspective. So let's talk about it all. In the company of author and journalist 
Victor Lukerson, former staff writer at The Ringer and business reporter for Time magazine, as well as a contributor at The New Yorker. Hello, Victor. Nice to have you. Hey, thanks for having me here, Don. It is one of those immense historical events, famous unto itself, just knocks your breath away when you first hear about it, but which is also a lens through which to examine so much more about race relations in America then and now. We're talking about the Greenwood District of Tulsa, still proudly exists today, but back before 1921, back before that May, what made this such an exceptional place for the times? You know, in that era, Don, Oklahoma was really known as the Eden of the West. It was a place where black folks from the Deep South were traveling to hoping to escape being under the boot of Jim Crow. You know, in the book, I write about this family, the Goodwin family. Uh, their patriarch, J.H. Goodwin, was a black man living in rural Mississippi. And, you know, when he was living there, he was finding a world where if a black man approached a white man on the sidewalk, the black man was expected to scurry into the gutter. For men like J.H. Goodwin, that just wasn't something he wanted to put up with. And in Oklahoma, there was a land where black folks were having a lot more independence, not having to put up with that kind of stuff. So in Oklahoma, there were a lot of already black folks from the Native American tribes living in the state at the time. It was a place where black folks actually were ceded acres and acres of land under the Native American tribe treaties. And so really, it was a place where black people could travel to to experience a different kind of life than what they were experiencing in the Jim Crow South. Let me understand what you just said. They could be ceded land under treaties for Native Americans. That's right. That's right. So folks may not know this, but the Native American tribes actually owned slaves before the Civil War. After the Civil War, all of these slaves became members of the tribes. And so in the early 1900s, the federal government essentially forced all the Native American tribes to switch from communal land ownership to individual land ownership. As part of this process, the black folks who were in the tribes also got land. So, you know, I'm sure you've heard about the 40 acres and a mule sort of false promise after the Civil War. Out in Oklahoma, black folks actually got that 40 acres. Some of them actually got 160 acres. And so you had this land wealth that was already seeded in Oklahoma in the early 1900s. And so it was a lot of these black members of these tribes who were recruiting black, black folks from the Deep South, telling them, hey, we found a place with bountiful crops, better education, and most importantly, uh, social equality. The ownership of land is fundamental in building generational wealth. That is everything over the time period, certainly, of white America and how wealth builds up over time. So you're talking about a place where that actually happened early days. What years are we talking about? Yeah, so this land wealth for the Native American tribes began around 1904, 1905. That's when the tribes were sort of forced into individual land ownership. And of course, there's a lot of complexity involved in that. The federal government, in some ways, was doing that in order to have greater control over tribal culture and tribal land. However, there were some folks in these tribes who actually benefited from it. You know, in the book, I write about a man named A.G.W. Sango. This is a black man who was a member of the Creek tribe, but he got to serve in their legislature. He was considered a respected leader in the tribe, and he was he was afforded 160 acres of land in Oklahoma in about 1905. And so for me, so for men like Sango, one of his motivations was to figure out how to get more black folks to come to Oklahoma. And so actually it was it was his man Sango, this Black Creek, who actually recruited J.H. Goodwin to come to Oklahoma instead of going somewhere else. You know, you have to remember in this era, we're talking about the early years of the Great Migration. And so black folks were really, really hoping to escape the Jim Crow South to go all, all kinds of places, you know, Chicago, New York, Detroit. But it turns out that Tulsa was another sort of great migration location. And so you actually had thousands and thousands of black folks coming into Tulsa, into Greenwood, trying to build a new life for themselves in that era. How does Greenwood itself originate? To understand Greenwood's story, you have to understand Tulsa's story. 
Tulsa being the oil capital of the world at the time. If you rewind back to the year 1900, there were less than a thousand people living in Tulsa. It's just this tiny frontier town no one really cares too much about. But in 1904, oil was discovered just a few miles south of the city, and it sort of transformed this little tiny frontier outpost, outpost into an oil mecca. And so in this area, you have thousands and thousands of white folks, too, coming into this place, hoping to make a little bit of money off of this newfound black gold. But that well had a spillover effect, essentially, so that black folks also saw it as a place where they could come to. Greenwood itself was founded actually in 1905. If you think about Tulsa being this burgeoning oil capital, there was a patch of low-lying land just north of the city. And that was where a black man in O.D.B. Gurley decided to found the People's Grocery Store, the very first business in Greenwood. So the People's Grocery is founded in 1905. From there, you have homes, churches, other businesses that sort of start fanning out around it. And so by 1914 or so, you have a community of about five to 6,000 people, black folks, many of whom have come from the Jim Crow South, who have ambition, who have business smarts, and are really trying to make this place into a really vibrant space. And so the Goodwin family actually came in 1914. And by that time, you already had the Dreamland Theater, which is a Black-owned theater owned by a woman named Lula Williams. You had the Tulsa Star, a Black-owned newspaper that would eventually become a daily newspaper, which is very rare in the era for the Black press. You know, you had attorneys living there. You had restaurants. You had dive bars, even. I'd like to talk a little bit about sort of what was going on on the underside of Greenwood, too. And so it really became this really thriving ecosystem that was attached to the sort of oil wealth going on in Tulsa, but also separate from it. How much does statehood play a part in this? Oklahoma becomes a state in 1907. What happens at that point? Yeah, so the statehood saga is in many ways the beginning of the tragedy that leads to the race massacre. Before statehood, Oklahoma actually was a sort of a surprisingly egalitarian place. You know, if you think back to circa 1900, actually, in Oklahoma, Black students, white students, and indigenous students all went to school together. It was a place where black folks could work in downtown Tulsa and even have white employees. However, at statehood, Oklahoma essentially decided to import Jim Crow policies from the Deep South. You know, a lot of the white folks were also coming from the Deep South, and so they were bringing that mentality with them to this new region. You know, there was actually a really big debate going on in Oklahoma about what kind of state it was going to be and whether it was going to have Jim Crow policies as part of its initial constitution. And so, in fact, a lot of the black leaders of the state, including this man Sango I mentioned, went all the way to President Roosevelt's office, went to the Oval Office in the White House to try to petition President Roosevelt to not allow Oklahoma to be a Jim Crow state. Unfortunately, though, Roosevelt ultimately denied their claim. And when Oklahoma became a state in 1907, it actually had segregated schools as part of its constitution. And the very first law passed by the legislature actually segregated train cars. And so for me, at least, that's one of the grandest tragedies of this whole story, that this place that could have been anything ultimately became an appendage of the Jim Crow South. Tell me about the title Black Wall Street. Where does that come from? Does it reflect the investing that was being done and the great prosperity because of it? Yeah, so Black Wall Street in some ways is a little bit of a misnomer, to be honest. I think Black Main Street would be a much better way to think about Greenwood. There was not even a bank in Greenwood, for example. But there were a lot of mom and pop shops there were a lot of really great commercial businesses. There was a lot of, you know, it was a space where if you were a resident there, you would find everything you needed within a block or two. And so I think it's much more of that Main Street mentality. Yeah, there is kind of an interesting sort of backstory about that phrase, though, Black Wall Street. So there is a sort of mythology that says that Booker T. Washington came to Tulsa one day, saw Greenwood and said that, oh, this must be the Negro's Wall Street. that He gave it the name. In my research, I actually never found that he actually ever said that. However, a black woman living there named Mary Jones Parrish, she wrote a book shortly after the race massacre 
And she actually called her the Negro's Wall Street in her book. And so for my research, at least, it seems like this woman, Mary Jones Parrish, actually coined Black Wall Street rather than uh, Booker T. Washington. Tell me what a typical day would look like, you know, in, say, 1915 or so, after the good ones have arrived. How big is this community? What is commerce looking like? Yeah, so, I mean, I think one of the big things to understand is that if you were living in Greenwood, your dollar would circulate throughout the community on a day-to-day basis. So it was a place where if you're living there, you might end up having lunch at Susie Bell's Cafe. This was an entrepreneur there whose smothered chicken was thought to be like the best thing you could have in the whole neighborhood. After you have lunch there, you might have uh, go see a movie at the Dreamland Theater where they screened vaudeville shows and also major films from places like Fox and Universal. If after going to the movie, you might decide to go to one of the bars or nightclubs. Uh, ragtime music was big in Greenwood. It was kind of like the hip-hop of 1915. So, you know, some of the older folks weren't into it, but if you were younger, you would have been listening to the ragtime music and all that kind of stuff. And then even after that, you know, you could even go to kind of an after-party kind of space. There was a place called the Zulu Lounge in Greenwood where this substance called chalk beer was served. It looked like grapefruit juice, but it hit a lot harder. And so chalk would have been what you were drinking um, if you wanted to end the night in a really fun way. And so sort of like no matter what your station was in economically, you would find things to do in this neighborhood. It was definitely a place where people of every economic strata lived together, which is, I think, really different than the way that our society is organized these days. So, you know, Greenwood really was a place, I think, a lot of times I think the wealth of the place is what's focused on. Obviously, that Black Wall Street title kind of gives you that impression. But I think it was much more about a community that was very tightly knit that had each other's back and really sort of focused on building up together in a lot of ways. A very microcosmic of the country, really, in terms of there being a very wealthy crowd, middle-class crowd, I imagine. I mean, it was all sort of right there. In how many acreage-wise, how big is this? Yeah, so Greenwood at the time was about 35 square blocks. So you're looking at a space where you're going to be running maybe like seven or eight blocks north and then five or six blocks east and west. And sort of as time progressed, it got bigger and bigger. But before the race massacre, it was a pretty densely populated, relatively small space. But even at that time, there were more than 200 businesses in this space. So it was small, but it was very, very dense with people and with ingenuity. And well-known throughout the Tulsa community, this would have been the place to hang out for a lot of people of all races, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that dynamic is actually sort of one of the things that tees up the massacre. There were a lot of, again, like kind of bars and nightlife areas in Greenwood And in some of these areas, there would actually be white people and especially like young white women would sometimes go into Greenwood to party and have fun. And so at the the same time that's happening, you're starting to see police investigations about this. The Oklahoma State Attorney General came to Greenwood once to investigate this idea of uh, white women hanging out in Greenwood with black men. And so that was going on, but also it was really creating a lot of ire among uh, white leaders in Tulsa and in Oklahoma. What happens in Tulsa really begins nationwide, doesn't it? There was a real shift around the return of GIs from uh, World War I. That time period, combined with the, the effects of the Great Migration, lots of demographics shifting in America and therefore social effects, right? Yeah. I have a chapter in my book called The War at Home and Abroad, which really kind of touches on this dynamic and the, the fact that black soldiers went overseas to France, fought for America, and not only that, but also sort of saw a world without Jim Crow. You know, when these soldiers went to France, they were celebrated by French citizens. They could court white women. They could, they could live as free men. But when they came back to America, they were put right back under the heel of Jim Crow. And so I think that dynamic made it so that many of these black men were no longer willing to put up with that. 
And so you had, on one hand, a streak of black independence that was rising up. But on the other hand, a lot of white anger towards that and also paranoia about black independence. In 1919, actually, a year that's now known as the Red Summer, there were more than 50 race riots or massacres all across the United States. I think it's also important to point out that these things were not just happening in the deep Jim Crow South. You know, there was a race riot in Chicago. There's one in Washington, D.C. Brisbane, Arizona had a race riot. And so this violence really seized the entire nation. And in almost every case, black folks were on the wrong end of it. I invite listeners to look on, say, Wikipedia and and just type in Red Summer. And you see a list that astonishes you. It's endless how many riots, uh, conflicts, things that could be fit into this terminology were happening all around the country, north and south. Like you said, the big letter ones were Chicago, Philadelphia. They all happened in this period of time. So I never really put two and two together that Tulsa was really at the tail end of that and a direct result of it, or is it completely unique? No, I think it's all tied together. I mean, these days we might think that people were very siloed then, but the role was actually pretty connected even in 1919, 1920. You know, for example, there was a riot in East St. Louis in 1917. And so one of the black victims of the riot actually came to Greenwood just months before the race massacre to talk about what he had experienced. We can also think about there was a Houston riot in uh, 1917, and it was the one example in all of these violence in which more white folks were killed than black folks. And so this Houston riot became a huge issue in white America, this idea, this sort of proof that you know black folks were out of control or going to have some kind of uprising. And so I think on both sides of Tulsa, there would have been a lot of awareness of this racial violence, and that's going to kind of create more of a hair-trigger situation, I think, in terms of how people respond. Where was the propaganda coming from? I, uh, of course, the newspapers. But was that being driven by the KKK? I mean, where was, it, where was the information coming from or the misinformation? It was certainly being driven by the white power structure. But I don't necessarily think you need the Ku Klux Klan to have a duplicitous white power structure. Mm-hmm. In Tulsa, Oklahoma, the newspaper was actually owned by a man named uh, Richard Lloyd Jones, actually a relative of Frank Lloyd Wright, of all people. And so Richard Lloyd Jones was, he was a moralist, kind of a crusader type. And so we had this huge agenda against vice, essentially. And so he, he deemed all of Greenwood to be a den of vice. And so before the race massacre, his newspapers are reporting often on black criminality or, again, on black people and white people fraternizing together. And so I think that in many cases, it wasn't necessarily the idea that, you know, there was some sort of vigilante group running muck or doing that kind of thing. It was more that even the white elite and sort of the white do-gooders, quote-unquote, they were the ones who had an issue with black independence, and they really were doing what they could to demonize black people ahead of the race massacre. Yeah. We really wanted to point up the fact that we're talking about a vibrant community, a really healthy, really strong community that represents great values and really what coming out of the Civil War was the hope of many, many Americans that would happen. That's what we're talking about with Greenwood, but it's not too different from other communities in America that are also suffering the same thing that happens here. It's just on a scale that kind of unbelievable scale. So let's get to the event itself. May 31st is Memorial Day weekend. Things are heating up in Oklahoma in more ways than one. What starts this riot that we're about to talk about? Yeah. And so on that, during that weekend, a uh, black shoeshine boy named Dick Rowland was working in downtown Tulsa and I need to go to the bathroom. Tulsa segregated. However, there is one bathroom available in a department store uh, near where he works. Dick Rowland goes into an elevator in this department store, and there's a white attendant named Sarah Page manning the elevator. When the elevator lurches, Dick Rowland steps on Sarah Page's foot or maybe grabs her arm, 
No one knows exactly what happened, but Sarah Page screamed, Dick Rowland ran away, and a worker at the department store kind of saw everything that happened. And so just a few hours later, Dick Rowland was arrested on a false attempted rape charge and placed into the Tulsa County Jail. Even after all that happened, I don't think the race massacre would have played out the same way. However, the Wired Press, which we just mentioned, wrote a very exaggerated, salacious article about Dick Rowland's arrest. It was actually called Nab Negro for Attacking Girl in Elevator. And so this article is saying that Dick Rowland scratched at her face, tore at her clothes. None of this was true, but it basically whipped a lot of white Tulsa into a frenzy. And so on the evening of May 31st, a group of as many as 1,000 white folks actually went to the county jail, some of them with the intention of removing Dick Rowland from his jail cell and lynching him. You know, this had actually been going on regularly in Oklahoma for the last several years. A white man had been lynched from the county jail in Tulsa only a few months before this. And so it was a very real threat that this could really happen. However, black folks from Greenwood, and many of them actually World War I veterans, decided they were not going to let Dick Rowan undergo this fate. And so a group of about 75 armed black men also came to the jail, demanded Dick Rowan be removed. The police refused. Ultimately, a black man and a white man got in an argument over a gun. A gunshot went off, and all hell broke loose, as they say. And so on that night, actually, they were shooting on the streets of downtown Tulsa between blacks and whites. White folks attempted to break into a National Guard armory in downtown Tulsa. They broke into the hardware stores to steal weapons. And they basically were planning for a much larger invasion for the next morning. And so actually on the morning of June 1st, at the crack of dawn, more than 5,000 white people actually invaded Greenwood, armed with guns, kerosene, matches, and torches. They ultimately destroyed more than 1,200 homes and businesses. They killed up to 300 people, displaced more than 10,000 residents. And so ultimately, it was actually the worst act of racial violence in U.S. history. I mean, it's a stand that still exists, not only on the city of Tulsa, but on the United States. I'll be back with more American history after this short break. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It sounds to me like this couldn't have happened on the scale that it did unless it had been planned in some way. Was this a was this an act that had been waiting for an excuse to happen? I actually think that's a really good way to phrase it, Don. You know, there is no smoking gun or concrete evidence or blueprint that anyone's ever found that sort of lays out a plan to do all of this. However, to your point, there's no way if anyone's even seen a photo of what Greenway looked like afterwards, like a war zone, there's no way to sort of execute all of that um, in a matter of hours without planning. And so one thing that's key to understand is the fact that city leaders and real estate, de- real estate developers were very interested in Greenwood. They wanted it to be an industrial site or a train depot, and they had not yet been able to figure out a way to sort of force people to buy out or give up their land in that kind of way. We also know that the city of Tulsa was very paranoid about a communist invasion at this time. This is the era of the Red Scare. And so city officials and police were actually doing aerial exercises with airplanes about how they would be able to attack communists, for example, they had been experimenting with dropping nitroglycerin from planes. And so there was a lot of, I think, capacity for White Tulsa to deal with a quote-unquote invasion or uprising. And I think that capacity was sort of put into execution really, really quickly at the moment of the race massacre. The other thing I would say about this that I think is important to understand is that, so May 31st is when the conflict happens at the courthouse. June 1st is the day that Greenwood is burned to the ground. On June 2nd, Tulsa's real estate leaders go to the city council and unveil a comprehensive plan for removing Greenwood residents further north, building a train depot on the former site. You know, they already had an entire plan ready, literally, as Greenwood still smoldered. And so I think that speaks more than anything else to earlier planning, I think. Sure. It's a dead giveaway. That's exactly, exactly what was happening. Up to a few years ago, this was not as well known as it is today. I mean, it's almost as if this was suppressed. Is that true? It definitely is. And I think what's interesting about it is how big a story it was when it happened. The Tulsa Race Massacre was a front page story in the New York Times on June 1st. It was covered across the country and across the world. And it was even covered in Tulsa itself for more than a year. Like, I've spent a lot of time digging through the archives of the Tulsa World and the Tulsa Tribune. And they were covering the aftermath of this every day for up to a year. However, after about a year or so, and especially when a lot of lawsuits started against the city of Tulsa and insurance companies, the local press coverage basically ended. And so you went from having daily coverage of this event in 1921 to in years later when the newspapers would sort of have a this year in history segment, you know, and 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later, never once mentioned. And certainly, I think culturally it faded out of memory for sure in both black and white Tulsa. You know, I've, I've, I'm living in Tulsa now, and so I've talked to dozens or hundreds of people about this living here, and both black and white folks of all ages have told me they never learned about this in school, They never learned about it from their parents. It was really something that the city of Tulsa and really the entire country wanted to bury uh, for a very long time. Exactly. Did a very good job of doing it. Part of that, I must say, was probably the result of a remarkable rebuilding, which was happening very quickly, right? I mean, they called this place Mecca. And in a very short amount of time, many, many of those buildings went right back up. Exactly. Is that true? Yeah. You know, for me, one of the most resonant moments of the aftermath is... About two weeks after the race massacre, Greenwood still smoldering, looking like a war zone. There was one church that remained, actually. First Baptist Church had not been burned to the ground. And so a lot of the black leaders had a meeting there uh, two weeks after the race massacre. 
J.W. Hughes, he was the principal of the elementary school, which had also been burned. He, like so many others, had lost almost everything. But he told the group that was gathered, I'm going to hold what I have until I get what I lost. And that really became the mentality of Greenwood. And so even though there were literally postcards distributed by white Tulsa afterwards saying running the Negro out of Tulsa, that was the caption of these postcards of the destruction, black folks refused to be run out. And so they banded together. They refused to sell their property to the white real estate guys. They were able to get a lot of donations from groups like the NAACP to help them with the rebuilding. And ultimately, by Christmas of 1921, there had already been hundreds of structures rebuilt. And by 1925, the National Negro Business League actually came to Tulsa to do their annual conference to sort of illustrate the fact that this place was actually bigger and better than ever. Over the course of the next couple of decades, actually, Greenwood actually became an even bigger neighbor than it had been pre-race massacre. You're looking at a place by the 1940s that has more than 400 businesses, more than 20,000 residents. It actually became a bigger and even more vibrant community in the mid-century. The man you, you're the protagonist you tell the story of in the, in the book, does very well, becomes a newspaper man, correct? Yeah, yeah. Ed Goodwin is actually the person I follow the closest in this story. He was a teenager at the time of the race massacre. He was actually literally about to graduate high school on the night of May 31st. And so he experiences this horrific event. He goes off to Fisk University for college. But he makes the key decision to come back to Tulsa and help rebuild his home. And so Ed ultimately bought a newspaper, the Oklahoma Eagle, in the 1930s. He also at one point owned a shoe shine shop on Greenwood Avenue. Um, he owned a nightclub. He was a little involved in the bootlegging and gambling. You know, there's a, there's a part of the book that kind of gets into the Greenwood underworld and how that interacted with the overworld economy. And so he kind of was a man for all seasons, you know what I mean? And uh, it really was, for me at least, it was really great to be able to follow somebody who showed all the different pathways toward success, and kind of all the ingenuity you needed to survive in Jim Crow America. Was anyone ever punished for the burning and looting? No, there was, there's never been anyone arrested for the murder and arson that happened during the race massacre. And there also has never been any kind of restitution offered to the people who lost everything. You know, a lot of these folks had insurance policies that said that if their property was burned, they would get a payout. However, all the insurance companies claimed that what had occurred was actually a riot, as in an even-handed fight between whites and blacks, and therefore they did not have to pay out on these policies. And so I think that, you know, there is there is the obviously the moral injustice of the race massacre, but there's also a legal injustice that's been going on, too, with these lawsuits that, are, that have never been honored. This second iteration of Greenwood must go on for several decades, right? I mean, this is the jazz age. We're going through the 20s. Then, of course, there's the, the Depression, World War II, all that stuff is a huge obstacle for everybody in the country. Tell me how Greenwood moves through the 20th century and ultimately suffers what so many Black communities suffer. Yeah, so in the book, I actually walk through those decades after the massacre in great detail. I think it's really important for people to understand that Greenwood cannot be defined just by those 36 hours of destruction. And so in the book, you get to learn about um, how the community bounced back, how it weathered the Depression how black folks fought for uh, war jobs, many, how black folks fought for war manufacturing jobs during World War II, and of course, how they sort of began the burgeoning civil rights movement in Greenwood. And so really, it was a place of a lot of culture and vibrancy. I actually really enjoyed being able to learn a lot about how the Chitlin Circuit impacted Greenwood. Um, in the 1950s, you had a lot of artists like B.B. King, Etta James, Bo Diddley, all come into Tulsa, to Black Tulsa, to perform. There's a, a space called the Big Ten Ballroom, actually, where they would all come. And it really was like a place of true black icons would come through Tulsa, Oklahoma, into Greenwood. That era also sort of signifies the last really resonant cultural moment for the community. Because by the 1960s, everything was changing. 
the civil rights movement meant that a lot of black folks were trying to figure out how they could have the right to enter white spaces. So, Victor, Greenwood moves along even to the 1960s. This is the period that I really wanted people to take notice of in the context of the tragedy we've headlined this about, which was a riot back in the 20s. What happens in the 60s, not just to to Greenwood, but to so many communities around America, black communities around America, formerly segregated, when things start to change in America in the 60s, another kind of destruction, a subtler and in, in the end, more insidious destruction happens. And I want to go through this carefully to understand how this resilient community, which has come back from the degradation of the Tulsa riot, meets an even greater foe in all of what takes place in 1960s America. So take us through this. I think on the top line, everyone's at least familiar with the civil rights movement being the, sort of the transformative moment for Black America in this time. However, at the ver- in parallel to the civil rights movement, you had this other phenomenon playing out called urban renewal. And so, you know, urban renewal was a federally concocted policy that was meant to sort of transform uh, inner city communities in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. It was pitched as a really positive thing that was going to allow people to have access to greater housing, better living conditions, better lives. But ultimately, it ended up being much more of an opportunity to, quote unquote, scrub clean inner cities from having black residents or having poverty or basically trying to get those folks who were seen as a blight on the community further and further away from core services. In Greenwood, you know, the story really begins in 1961. Ironically, it's just a few months after Dr. King came to Tulsa for the very first time. And so you have Dr. King coming to Tulsa in 1960, talking about the promise of a new tomorrow, sort of integrating with white America. And then only months later, you had an official from the Urban Renewal Authority come in into the same community, talking about how the plan was to ultimately demolish a lot of the current housing and structures in order to bring in new housing, new homes, and all this kind of stuff. What was the purpose of that as it was framed for these people? Yeah, so the idea was that people would actually end up having better living opportunities. And so if you're a person living in Greenwood, for example, you might might have gone to one of these meetings. You would even see a slideshow of uh, comparable communities like Little Rock, Arkansas, showing the older dilapidated housing. Click over to the next slide. Here's a new house, smiling family. Everything looks great. Ultimately, though, I think the challenge or the problem of the process was the fact that these plans were being decided for communities and not by communities. And so in Greenwood, for example, after the program sort of gets into motion, you would have planning meetings happening in the city all the time where residents would come and say, hey, I'm confused about this process. Hey, I don't want to move. Hey, I would prefer to actually just live in my house for the rest of my life. But ultimately, these city plans were not something that was going to be decided by the residents themselves. So if you're living in Greenwood, for example... The process will really play out that one day you're living in your home, you, you would get a letter from the Urban Renewal Authority telling you that, hey, you know, we've been working with people in your community. We've decided on this great new plan for your neighborhood. We'd love to purchase your property from you. Let's say you ignore the first letter. You might get another letter a couple weeks later saying, hey, you know, we're really excited about this plan. We'd really love to purchase your property. By the time you get a third letter, ultimately they're going to be telling you that we're going to be purchasing this property. We're going to be initiating eminent domain proceedings and you're going to be forced to leave your home. And so I think ultimately the, the problem with Urban Renewal was the fact that it was pitched as a community development program, but ultimately it was a process in which cities got to dictate what was going to happen to these neighborhoods that had been existing for decades and decades. Yeah. I mean, you kind of reverse engineer this whole process. What ends up becoming the reality of all American cities is servicing the, the automobile, you know, the changing network of transportation. 
where are you going to put those highways, which nobody wants a highway over their house? Well, they become the lower income places or not, or, or just places less desirable, so to speak, to the city. And so these places are, are eminently domain and they get knocked down. I mean, it's unbelievable. You go New Orleans, Philadelphia, anywhere you want to go, look at where those highways were and look what was there before them. This is the story of Greenwood as well, right? Yeah, it definitely was. The highway came through Greenwood in 1967 and actually it ended up displacing the Goodwin family. This newspaper that they bought, the Oklahoma Eagle, their office was demolished to make way for this highway, in fact, like so many other homes and businesses. And to your point, it always went through low-income communities. They did not have the political power connections to change where these plans were going. In Tulsa's case, actually, there was a white neighborhood called Maple Ridge, one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in the city that the highway was initially planned to go through. And this group actually ended up suing the Department of Transportation to make sure it didn't happen. And it didn't happen. You know, they didn't, they didn't put it there. We still, Maple Ridge still looks just the way it did 100 years ago. Greenway has been totally transformed by urban renewal, by highways, and so many other black communities have as well, which I think is a real tragedy of us losing our history in that way. Of course, yeah. The story of this even dates back before. It d- deserves its own podcast, frankly. The idea of these segregated neighborhoods, which were forced to become, as you said, their own dollars stayed with it, circulated within the communities. Therefore, they were vibrant, happening. There wasn't desolation. There wasn't, you know, abandoned storefronts. People were safe. Things are desegregated. Income lowers. It's a, it's a fascinating sequence of events that really is very predictable and very repeated all around the country. Tell me about Greenwood today. It still exists. It is still a vibrant community. Yeah. So Greenwood today is kind of a place of contradictions, I would say. You know, when the first time I visited the neighborhood, when I started working on this project, it was actually the 97th anniversary of the race massacre. And I was really expecting to see a lot of reverence for the space, you know, honoring the folks who had been murdered here 97 years before. But when I came, there was a vigil happening for the race massacre that was being attended by maybe 20 to 30 people. But there were actually hundreds more people in the neighborhood going to see a minor league baseball game. Minor league baseball stadium was built in Greenwood in 2010 to the protest of a lot of longtime residents. And so it's a space that it does still exist, but has been used for a lot of cross purposes. You know, we have this minor league baseball stadium now. There's a Holiday Inn in Greenwood, a lot of new commercial white-owned projects. There is still some of the black history here, but it is at risk of being sort of gentrified and wiped out by a lot of wealthier interests, I would say. Yeah, well, you look at Bedford-Stuy in Brooklyn, any number of neighborhoods around the country where where economics really rule the the roost and real estate is God, you know, and that has undermined a lot of really important neighborhoods around around this country. But I want to end on a positive note in so much as we're talking about the resilience of of really black America in in, in larger sense. I mean, really, it's an extraordinary thing. I'm always tempted to say it. I know it comes across as corny coming from me, white podcast host saying this, but to me, the the story of Black America, as represented perfectly by Greenwood, is is the greatest American story. I'm not kidding. How does a community pick itself up from literally being burned to the ground and decide to continue on despite the odds, despite knowing on the other side of this is still more resistance, still more hatred? It's over and over and over again. And yet here we are still today. It's an incredible story. It's very moving. So when people look at this story, I hope you do, the Tulsa Race Massacre, very, very important. Think about that theme in the back of your mind, because it's the real one at work. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I talked about the Goodwin family a lot on our conversation today, and I mentioned how a lot of Greenwood has been gentrified. 
But if you go to Greenwood today, you will see a newspaper office. The Oklahoma Eagle is still here, actually, in Greenwood right now. The Gwynn family still owns it, and they still put out a newspaper every single week. And so I think that story alone speaks to the resilience of this community, of this family, and really of this story. Here, here. Victor Lukerson is a journalist and author based in Tulsa who works to bring neglected black history to light. He is a former staff writer at The Ringer and business reporter for Time magazine. His book, Built from the Fire, the epic story of Tulsa's Greenwood District, America's Black Wall Street, is available. Published in 2023. Victor, so glad to meet you. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks, Don. Glad to be here. Hey, thanks for listening to American History Hit. You know, every week we release new episodes, two new episodes, dropping Mondays and Thursdays. All kinds of content from mysterious missing colonies to powerful political movements to some of the biggest battles across the centuries. Don't miss an episode. By hitting like and follow, you help us out, which is great, but you'll also be reminded when our shows are on. And while you're at it, share it with a friend. American History Hit with me, Don Wildman. So grateful for your support. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of American History Hit. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you'll also get your first three months for just $1 a month when you use code AmericanHistory at checkout.